America and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on Ukraine, a U.S. security partner in Eastern Europe. Our guest is Prime Minister Oleksiy Gunchalruk, who served as Prime Minister of Ukraine from August 2019 to March 2020. He was Ukraine's youngest serving Prime Minister. Prime Minister Gunchalruk initiated crucial reforms in Ukrainian markets, instated new anti-corruption operations, and launched investment in climate improvement measures. Prior to his government service, Prime Minister Guncharuk practiced law and started a non-governmental organization to assist investors adversely affected by corruption. From 2015 to 2019, Prime Minister Guncharuk headed an NGO aiming to digitize Ukraine, support businesses, and improve bureaucratic efficiency. He also served as deputy head of the Presidential Office of Ukraine and was a member of the National Reforms Council under the President of Ukraine. Prime Minister Goncharuk is currently a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council and visiting fellow at Stanford's Freeman Spogli Institute. From the 9th through the 18th centuries, the Kievian Rus, Mongols, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, Crimean Tartars, Cossacks, and eventually Russians controlled the territory that is now Ukraine. In the late 1700s, the Russian Empire annexed western Ukraine and the Crimean Congate along the Black Sea, transforming them into Russian provinces. Ukrainian society was Russified as the Ukrainian elite entered Russian nobility through marriage, governmental position, and education. In the 1800s, however, academia and other influences reawakened Ukrainian cultural identity. As with the Baltic states, the 1905 Russian Revolution weakened Russian influence and allowed the resurgence of a Ukrainian national identity. Post-World War I Ukraine declared independence, but the Russian Red Army conquered a majority of Ukrainian territory and formed the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. In 1932, Joseph Stalin induced a famine in an attempt to reduce private land ownership and encourage collectivization, which killed close to 4 million Ukrainians. The Soviet leadership strengthened its control over Ukraine in 1939 after annexing western Ukraine under the guise of the Nazi-Soviet Pact. The Nazis killed over 5 million Ukrainians, and Stalin deported hundreds of thousands more to Siberia. In January of 1990, nearly half a million Ukrainians organized themselves into a 700-kilometer-long human chain, uniting several cities in a key step towards restoring Ukrainian statehood. Ukraine gained independence in 1991, following the dissolution of the Soviet Union through the Belaveza Agreement, and the United States established diplomatic relations with a free and democratic Ukraine. 
Ukraine's first president, Leonid Kravchuk, oversaw the country's transition from Soviet rule during his three years in power. His successor, Leonid Kuchma, and his administration allowed corruption to grow and tightened controls on Ukrainian media, culminating in the cassette scandal of 2000. Scandals of the early 2000s and corruption in the 2004 presidential elections, wherein initial results were rigged in favor of Kuchma's preferred replacement, former Prime Minister Viktor Yanukovych, led to the Orange Revolution of 2004. U.S. policy toward Ukraine emphasizes supporting Ukraine's free market economy, improving Ukraine's defensive capabilities, and strengthening democratic institutions as Ukraine faces threats from internal corruption and external aggression from Russia. When Yanukovych was named prime minister for a second term in 2006, he began to orient Ukraine towards Russia and away from Western Europe. Yanukovych was elected president in 2010. In late 2013, when Russian President Vladimir Putin threatened to paralyze the Ukrainian economy if Ukraine signed a free trade agreement with the European Union, the Euromaidan protests erupted. President Yanukovych's security forces killed nearly 80 protesters in Kiev as tens of thousands of Ukrainians engaged in public demonstrations to protest the reversal of plans to sign the EU agreement. Tensions escalated into a revolution. Yanukovych fled to Russia, and the opposition took control of the government. The Russian government then capitalized on Ukraine's chaotic state, annexed Crimea through military occupation, and invaded eastern Ukraine with paramilitary forces operating under the cover of conventional military forces. Ukraine remains a dangerous flashpoint and the primary focus of President Vladimir Putin's goal of establishing Nova Russia, turning the Black Sea into a Russian lake and restoring his country to national greatness. The low-level war in Ukraine could escalate as Russia masses more troops near Ukraine's borders while continuing a campaign of political subversion and economic coercion. We welcome Prime Minister Guntaruk to discuss the U.S.-Ukraine relationship, the Russian threat to security, and priorities to reform and strengthen governance in Ukraine. Prime Minister Alexei Huncharik, great to have you here as the first in-person guest on Battlegrounds. Welcome to the Hoover Institution and welcome to Stanford University. Thank you very much, General. It's a great honor and pleasure to speak to you in this perfect place. <laughs> well, you know, we have a lot to talk about, right? Yeah. And, and I, I thought maybe we could begin, because I'm a historian, talking about the history of how we got to today. And, and, uh, and of course, you know, Ukraine has been under duress, right, since its yeah. independence in, in 1991. And I thought maybe you could explain to our viewers what that mm -hmm. experience has been like, the struggle for democracy, the efforts to reform and, and counter corruption, and especially the, the, the efforts to resist the, this, this pernicious form of Russian aggression. So can you just explain to, to, to our viewers the history of Ukraine from independence in 91 to today? Uh, Ukraine has, and uh, Ukrainian nation has very deep history, like hundreds, more thousands here. And um, the newest history of Ukraine, uh, we count from the collapse of Soviet Union. Last 13 years, uh, 30 years ago, Ukrainian nation uh, 
like got a chance to build the state, independent state. So uh, I would describe these 13 years uh, like a period between uh, three revolutions. We have we had three revolutions in Ukraine. First revolution was when Soviet Union was collapsed. It was a fight for independence uh, against Soviet. Against so maybe you know this story, and I shouldn't uh, spend a lot of time on it. But the general idea was to create an independent state, and it was a dream for a lot of people in Ukraine for uh, like a dozen years before. And uh, it was very important and that's why Ukraine played key role in this in that story uh, about uh, collapse. Uh, then it was complicated 19s, 90s and uh, it was a period when oligarchs appeared in Ukraine because of uh, unfair and illegal, sometimes illegal privatization process and so on and so forth. It was a complicated time for us. We uh, didn't have uh, strong institutions, uh, but we uh, did have uh, strong democratic traditions. Mm -hmm. And that's why uh, we still have like fair elections. And uh, in uh, 2004, uh, when Orange Revolution happened, it was a uh, pushback from our nation uh, to the uh, like strongman guys. Right, and the manipulation of the election. Absolutely, yeah. and it was a fight for democracy. It was a fight for democracy because people uh, like understood that without this fight, it's impossible to save it, mm -hmm. and uh, we shouldn't take it uh, into grant uh, like granted. Yeah. And then, after, after Orange Revolution, uh, it was a period of some like cultural, national, uh, in Renaissance maybe, it was economic growth period, and it was good before the financial crisis. Right. Then financial crisis happened, and uh, Ukraine... So this is Orange Revolution 2004, financial crisis 2008, 2009. Yeah, it was very like, good four years. And that period of time, I believe, uh, Ukrainian nation finally understood and find him, themselves as a European and like pro-Western and a part of Western world for sure. Not only in the democracy, but on an identity level, uh, like European country, really a European country. Because like geographically, Ukraine is for sure a European country because the geographical center of, Ukraine, of Europe uh, is like located in the Ukraine's territory, so it's doubtless. But uh, on a level of identity, it was a question for um, a lot of people. And at that period of time, uh, Ukrainians, uh, total majority of Ukrainians uh, decided that, okay, our main uh, like direction of our nation uh, it's like it's e e towards Europe, towards European Union and uh, strategic uh, alliance with uh, United States, Canada and so we are part of Western world. And then um, uh, Yunukovych, uh, President Yunukovych won the elections. Uh, he was supported uh, one more time, uh, as you absolutely correctly mentioned in your book, uh, by uh, Russian uh, influence. Because we still, uh, we used to have uh, and we still have 
unfortunately, a huge influence uh, of Russian medias and Russian agents, uh, informational um, like networks and sources of information in Ukraine. And when Yanukovych won, uh, for me personally, uh, it was absolutely clearly understandable that uh, these guys will not go uh, themselves. Yeah. And when Yanukovych uh, decided not to sign the, European, the agreement uh, with European Union, it was absolutely clear that the moment is critical, it's crucial, and people uh, started protesting. And uh, Yanukovych uh, used the violence against people, and that's how a revolution started. And uh, all of you uh, could uh, see all these events, all these terrible pictures when people were killed. Like more than 100 like peaceful protesters was just killed uh, on the street. And uh, it was a critical moment. Yanukovych escaped uh, to Russia, moved to Russia. Uh, one more time with the support uh, of uh, Russian uh, special services, I believe. And, uh, and it was the revolution of dignity was the revolution for European choice, for, for values. And we have reforms uh, in uh, uh, um, almost all the spheres of like, governmental and social style. So, if, if you look into the history of Ukraine, there's a history, it's a successful history, uh, I would say, because we are still a democracy. And uh, we have the only country in the region uh, we have positive uh, democratic trend. So we become more and more and more democratic. And uh, if you will compare uh, this trend uh, with our neighbors, even on our Western borders, even Hungary, even Poland, um, it's, uh, the trend is absolutely opposite. So Ukraine now, uh, despite the general negative to democratic trend, keeps uh, keep going to the democracy and uh, it's an example how to fight for democracy and not to take it into, into granted. Yeah. It, it is really, I think, a frontier between democracy and authoritarianism and of course you know, sure. Russia didn't give up after the oh, yeah. revolution and and in fact, I think uh, what Vladimir Putin has demonstrated yeah. is his determination yeah. to ensure Ukraine doesn't move further to the West and towards Europe, and and also to ensure that Russia can exert dominant influence over Ukraine in pursuit of this Novo Russia idea. I yeah. think, right, Putin? I think what he really wants to do is restore Russia to nat national greatness mm -hmm. in large measure at the expense of uh, of Ukraine and yeah. and, the, and and to weaken Europe broadly, right? So. So of course, you know, you had a personal perspective on this, right? From the, from the Orange Revolution, yeah. and then of course, a decade after that, you have yeah. the invasion of Ukraine and the yeah. and the annexation of, of Crimea. Can you tell us a little bit about your your personal experience in in, the, in that period of time, and and then then we can talk maybe about, the, you know, the, the the duress that Ukraine has been under since the invasion in, in 2000 and 2014. Um. <clears throat> mm. Before the Revolution of Dignity, I used to be a lawyer. I used to be a, a managing partner of a big law firm in Kyiv. Uh, we had a lot of like very like fancy and uh, well-known, even in Europe, 
clients, so it's, it, it was a successful business. And I never participated, had never participated elections before the uh, revolution of dignity. Because uh, I lived in a world uh, where democracy is, some, is a norma. Yeah. It's something like, like an air, yeah. Mm -hmm. It just exists. Uh, and uh, Yanukovych and his like band, his 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 uh, uh, crowd showed me uh, that you that I can lose this uh, freedom and I can lose this uh, democracy, and that's why I become so active. I participated uh, Orange Revolution from the day one uh, till the last day, and uh, I uh, have been uh, in Donetsk. Uh, like two weeks before uh, invasion, I have been to Crimea three or four weeks before invasion. So we knew uh, that uh, we'll have these problems there and we were trying to build some unofficial network to resist and uh, we failed with it. Um, so I have I do have my personal experience about it. It was, we were scared for sure, of course, but uh, during the Revolution of Dignity, we had uh, this slogan, this motto, uh, that uh, there is no sense to, to be scared. There is no sense to fear. And uh, the freedom is our religion. And to these mottos, uh, from my point of view, perfectly describe uh, our motivation that if you will be scared, you will lose freedom and you will be, uh, it's like you, you have a shame and you have a war, mm -hmm. like Churchill uh, told. So uh, I know this from my personal experience. And uh, after the Revolution of Dignity, I was invited into the government and sort, it was my war against the corruption. And uh, of course, we were trying to help our like people uh, and our volunteers uh, on the front line, and uh, that's that's the perfect description uh, how nation, not state, nation mm -hmm. can fight for the freedom even against like ten times stronger, ten times more capable uh, enemy. In this conceptual war, and I believe it's not a war between Russia and Ukraine, for sure, it's not. It's a war against democracy. And the main task in this war, in this conceptual war, is to destroy trust and share fear. Yeah. It's very simple, uh, uh, like, tools, yeah? And Russia is perfect in both of this uh, stuff. It's like world champion, maybe, right. uh, in doing this. and. Uh, I, I know this on, a, my, on my personal experience, uh, how they share the fakes, misinformation, disinformation, uh, and how they try to uh, create chaos and uncertainty around you to make you scared, to make you disorganized, and so on and so forth. It's like a perfect tactics. Yeah. 
you know, you started talking about this earlier as well. Could you maybe explain how do you see this, what some people have called Russian new generation warfare, right? So you yeah. have the invasion of Ukraine in 2014 that includes unconventional forces, Russian unconventional forces, under the cover of a big conventional force capability. Yeah. Yeah. But this is only one piece of it, right? You, yeah. You're alluding to this, what I describe it and think about is as a campaign of disruption, right? Mm -hmm. Disrupt trust, right? Break apart mm -hmm. societies. Uh, create divisions within them or mm -hmm. widen divisions that already mm -hmm. exist, and then disinformation, and then denial. You know, what, what my friend Mark Sedwell is called implausible deniability, right? Yeah. Even when yeah. Yeah. the Russians shoot down a civilian airliner and it's clear to everybody that that's what happens. Yeah. Oh, that, that wasn't us. We didn't do that. They deny, so, yeah. So I, how, how do you understand Russian new generation warfare? Because this is important for Ukraine. This is important for any country that is a, an object of Russian subversion. And the United States as well, where Russian new generation warfare is very active. Of course. I actually have seen, uh, like myself, the, these events around the capital uh, last year. It yeah, was January 6th, the assault on the... On the uh, yeah, so, and it was, uh, in, it, it reminded me, uh, the, the, the effects uh, in Ukraine, uh, because uh, Russia works hard, not only in Ukraine, in Europe and in the United States here, to divide the society, to create, to play uh, all this uh, division and to use uh, uh, the tensions, emotions, uh, and uh, all the people and to provoke them to be aggressive and to fight each other inside. So, Well, like in, in the U.S., right, they're very active yeah. on issues of race. Yeah. It's about 80% of Russian disinformation is to divide us on issues of race. Absolutely. Then it's immigration gun control, anything that we're divided on, but in, in Ukraine. They right? use everything. They use even 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 COVID situation they use. Yeah. Yeah. Look into the into the uh, like activity of RT, Russia today. Yeah. It's absolutely ridiculous. Right. They they promote anti vaccination. It's like yeah, and 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 how we uh, what's our answer? What's yeah. our answer? Yeah. We still have an account of Russian television of RT, Russia Today, uh, on YouTube. Right. And YouTube is like United States Corporation. What does right. it mean? Right. And, and, and well, the yeah, office and, of Google, and, official yeah. office of Google, regional office, where? In Moscow. Yeah. And they have problems exactly before the elections in, in Russia. Mm -hmm. And still they have office in Moscow. How 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 it's how it's possible to 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 explain it if you understand that it's a war? It's impossible to understand right, it. Right, and and you know we we just we are really not competing in this area. I'd love to get your advice on this. How did you, when you were prime minister, how did you approach this information warfare? What were your priorities? You know, I, I was traveling in in Turkey uh, just a couple of years ago, right? Yeah. And and I was looking for English news. The only English news station was RT. There was no there was no CNN. There was no Fox, there was no MSNBC, there was no BBC. Yeah. And so clearly they bought their way into some of these markets yeah. to, to sow propaganda within our own societies, yeah. but even really globally. Because they don't have an economic uh, like reasons or economic goals uh, behind it. it they yeah. don't have. They just spend like oil money uh, to make sure that their reality uh, like act in a different part of the world and create their influence. Mm -hmm. uh, before we start in, uh, discussing the means and tools and the capabilities, uh, I would like to 
tell a couple of words about the goals. Yeah. Why? Right. Why it happened? I believe that uh, it's complicated, of course, uh, question, but to simplify the answer, uh, Russia uh, had found uh, themselves as a separate civilization. And the core idea of this uh, civilization is to protect the world from the evil. Yeah. And they, they think it's not a joke. It's almost a Bible-style battle. Uh, and in this uh, Bible-style battle, uh, the Russian on the side of, like, of everything's good, and the Western world uh, like showed as a representative of evil. Because yeah. West... And, and the Muslim world as yeah. well, right? The others. Yeah. And this is yeah. the co-option of the Russian church. Could you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Well? Yeah. Right. And that it is absolutely clear that on a conceptual level, they build a concept in which the uh, Kremlin and Russian nation, great Russian nation, uh, fight for uh, against evil. Mm -hmm. And this evil is trying to destroy their civilization, to attack them, to diminish yeah. their influence, and to undermine their core values. It's like Skrepy, yeah? Mm -hmm. uh, they call this Skrepy, uh, to uh, make sure that Russia will not have a future. Because uh, they, they, they appeal to the argument that uh, we, as Russian world, we have a future only if our people, if our children will keep uh, our values and keep our, uh, like, scrap is protected. Mm -hmm. And uh, based on this idea and to uh, explain that their civilization is not only the Russian Federation, uh, they use this term like Russian world. Mm -hmm. Russian right. world is like built on the concept that all Slavic and Orthodox yes. uh, nations is like a part of their world and because of the conspiracy series of some Western empires starting from like Austro-Hungarian, uh, Austro-Hungarian, some, mm -hmm. some, some place place uh, 100 years ago and uh, uh, like till these days, uh, Europe and United States, everyone is trying to destroy this Russian world. And the key role of Ukraine in this concept, uh, because uh, Ukraine is a Slavic nation, mm -hmm. and the majority of our people is like Orthodox Christian. Uh, so on an identity level, it's very similar. And, but, but, Russia, uh, uh, is an autocracy, and uh, the Moscow is a center of this very uh, like authoritarian Russian world. And Ukraine uh, already chose the absolutely different uh, direction. We are already a democracy. And this is the biggest problem for Russia, because how to explain their people mm -hmm. that these people Ukrainians, it's almost the same as like the Slavic, they, they are Orthodox Christian, but they can live in a free society. How to explain this to their people? Right. That's why the concept of successful democracy in Ukraine 
is absolutely critical it's for a to Russia. Absolutely, and, and, and on a the conceptual to on the yeah. conceptual level, and it's not because of money, it's not because of territories, and it's because it's on the conceptual level. Mm -hmm. uh, it absolutely destroy and undermine the general idea of this Russian world because it, it's impossible. It's incomplete world without uh, Ukraine. And that's why they're trying to undermine uh, Ukraine and in all levels, to create chaos, to create uncertainty uh, in Ukraine, to show that democracy is a failed concept. Mm -hmm. And it's impossible to implement it as a concept. It's a concept. It's not like bad or good. It's like failed concept. And the Western world, when Western world is trying to share these democratic values in the world, uh, it's not uh, sincere. It's not sincere, it's just a play. It's just a game, and the Western world is trying to undermine other civilizations by sharing uh, democracy. This is very interesting to understand, and very important to understand, because one more time, there is no any economic reason to build Nord Stream the second, for example. Right. It's a tool, it's right. a weapon. This is the Nord Stream 2 pipeline for our viewers that is just about to be completed, yeah. that, that the Biden administration green-lighted, which I didn't understand, <laughs> and, uh, and will create greater economic and, and dependency uh, yeah. of Europe yeah. on Russia. It's a hook. And it's a, it's a cash machine, right, for, yeah. for Putin to use to accelerate this campaign of disinformation and, dis and, and uh, disruption and denial. So how, let's, can we move to maybe energy security then and, and, and look at the way that Russia uses uh, economic coercion yeah. uh, based on creating dependence on, on Russian natural gas. It's affecting Europe already with the gas shortages. Mm -hmm. uh, the, of course, the artificial gas shortages. Yeah, artificial gas shortages. It's and, very and, important and, and to understand. And Putin has telegraphed that. He's basically said, listen, you know, yeah. the reason you're experiencing gas shortages is because of the supply constraint that they're imposing to highlight the need to complete Nord Stream 2, which will then increased their course of power over Ukraine. And well. he is doing this uh, like a lecture. Mm -hmm. Right. If right. you will look into the picture in the Russian television, in RT, for example, or internet, mm -hmm. it's a lecture. Right. He is playing with uh, Western politics, uh, politician, uh, like a teacher, from a position of like person who knows everything, and who is trying to explain to like Ursula von der Leyen uh, that okay, I will explain you some simple, some simple uh, like uh, st stuff uh, on the fingers. Yeah. So, speaking about energy security, it's impossible to build the energy security in Europe without Ukraine, physically. Uh, you absolutely like perfectly mentioned that. Ukraine is like front line between uh, Russia and Europe. But at the same time, Ukraine is the biggest European country. Uh, but territory, it's the biggest European country with a huge deposits of like mineral resources and so on and so forth, with one of the biggest uh, um, electricity grid, electricity network uh, in Europe. So uh, with, with a powerful uh, nuclear plants and so on and so forth. It's a big infrastructural uh, country. And uh, it's absolutely impossible in the long run, or even in a middle-term perspective, it's impossible to build the, the energy security without uh, Ukraine. And now, Putin uh, uh, created uh, the artificial shortage in Ukraine and in Europe to show 
as that guys, you are hostages. You are hostages. And you have a choice. I can give you money, but you will play with me. Or I will create a problem to you. And you will, be re you will not be re-elected. Right. What's important? When they speak to you, they speak to you like the guy who will be in an office in a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And they think that they are forever. Mm -hmm. You are only the, the, I don't know, the puppet, the tool, the, 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 the small piece of this Western civilization. And they can act in a long-term and middle-term perspective. Right. They can corrupt you. They can make you scared and so on and so forth. And they are playing with you in all the spheres, in the sanctional politics, in the informational sphere, in the uh, energy sphere, like that. Because you are elected. Right. You are elected. And uh, I will speak to you only because you are in office. The temporary in this period. occupant of whatever. And Putin's there till 2036, maybe. Now, Absolutely. Right? Yeah, and so. if you will not work with me, I will undermine your influence through my uh, tools. Mm -hmm. I will be, uh, criticize you. I will finance your opponents. Uh, I, I will destroy your reputation and so on and so forth. And you, anyway, will not be reelected. And I will uh, work with you. Uh, with your m more flexible uh, next uh, partner, so successor. So uh, it's a, it's a, it's a style, you know, it, and it's uh, it's absolutely not enough to analyze one sphere without uh, without uh, other spheres. I believe that we need to find. It's absolutely necessary to find the conceptual, the uh, multi-layeral answer to this uh, threat because it's like way of thinking. It's not, mm -hmm. it's, it's not to reach some, some concrete economic goal. It's not to protect some concrete economic interest. It's not to protect even some principles. It's, 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 it's a global war, global, global play, global game against democracy as a concept because right. democracy doesn't work. And if democracy works, Kremlin is in the threat. Right. And so really it is, it is really a, it's a crisis of confidence they want to create, yeah. right? A lack of confidence in democratic processes and institutions and, and principles. And so can you tell me about, maybe tell our viewers more about your time as prime minister, what your agenda was to, to strengthen Ukrainian confidence, right? And mm -hmm. to, because I, I think there is, there is a defensive aspect of this, right? Against, against you know, dependence on Russian gas, mm -hmm. right? We should defend against that by diversifying energy sources, for example. But in there's, there's also like a, almost an offensive way, right, or a, a way to strengthen ourselves, to focus on our own institutions. You know, there's, of course, there's been a long effort to reform in, in Ukraine. One of Russia's t first talking points is always yeah. there's so much corruption and, yeah. and, and they, try to, they try to really uh, go after Ukraine's reputation to, to, again, diminish confidence in democracy. How do you see the reform effort over time? What was your agenda? What more remains to be done to strengthen Ukraine, while the country's still under duress? Um, first of all, uh, I think that the reputation of Ukraine uh, is much worse uh, because of this like propaganda uh, than it's uh, in the real uh, life. Mm -hmm. I know like tons of stories when people came to Ukraine and was shocked. It's like, wow, we expected the, the, the much worse mm -hmm. uh, circumstances in there. So uh, it's, it's one of the goal, uh, goals, uh, uh, of Kremlin's goals to destroy the reputation in Ukraine. Uh, 
and to destroy trust between the countries, between partners, and with pe between people inside the societies, and to divide, just to divide. Um, it's still a lot of work should be done uh, to transform our institutions, to build their capabilities, uh, capacities. But uh, I would say that Ukraine now and Ukraine 10 years ago, it's two absolutely different countries. Um, I was invited into the presidential team and into government uh, to make a f like quick reforms. Uh, I, I remember one interesting meeting with uh, on the, our early days in office uh, with Benjamin Netanyahu. And he uh, has a very um, experienced politician told us uh, exactly like, guys, you have six months. And it was absolutely just the prime minister of Israel was visiting visiting Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he was visiting Ukraine, and uh, as a one of the maybe most uh, uh, experienced politician uh, with a worldwide name and so on and so forth, he is very well known in all the world. And he told us directly, guys, you have six months to do some reforms. Mm -hmm. Then you will have more complicated circumstances and like uh, now it's a good time and that was our religion that was our uh, like belief that we, we should do everything as quick as possible we launched the uh, land reform uh, so our idea was to build three markets uh, land market labor market uh, civilized, li liberalized uh, labor market and uh, financial market. Uh, because without cheap resources, financial resources, it's impossible to achieve uh, economic growth. Economic growth, yeah. Uh, and that was our plan, that was our focus. And uh, we absolutely immediately uh, sent to the parliament the like, draft of the bill about land reform. Right. And it was a because once you have land reform, then you can leverage land to borrow money, and that money can then generate business, and and so th this has been it, a successful model. Absolutely, but it's not. But it's not only. You know, it's about like it's about culture be behind it. Mm -hmm. If you are an owner of the landlord, right, you rely and you behave like an owner. Yeah, and you understand that like in the two years, in the five years, uh, nobody will take you. Uh, this uh, land from you and you can invest and you can sh uh, choose the long-term and middle-term business models right when you are just like land this a tenant yeah right yeah uh, you, you're playing very short mm -hmm. and you if you play in very short the money is very expensive everything very expensive so you know mm -hmm. it's absolutely different business logic behind it so this reform was very important, not only for economic growth, but for some cultural changes, to change the role model, the, the change the uh, way how our business think, mm -hmm. uh, to create some addition, additionally to, 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 to make broader the, uh, the, the, the owners part of the society, you know. So, uh, that was absolutely critical stuff. Uh, of course, our priority was to fight corruption. We were 
uh, the first uh, government in the history of our country without the corruption on top level. And even our enemies uh, recognize that. So it's impossible to, to, to tell that, okay, he is corrupted too. Yeah. And it was a very important example to the West that it's, it's possible to have um, and clear and honest prime minister in Ukraine. So it's, yeah. it's possible. Yeah. Uh, it's bad or good, like so somebody can like it or dislike it, but it's possible. Yeah. The democracy is on the level when the prime minister and ministers could be a clean people. Right. Uh, and uh, that why, uh, that's why one of our priorities was to fight corruption as soon as possible. We understood that. We, don't have a lot of time because if you will fight against almost each other, uh, everyone on like many directions, uh, you will have no a lot of time. And uh, we have a lot of examples uh, of successful examples uh, for this uh, short period of time. For, for example, we uh, closed all, almost all, but like. Mm, 99%, something like that. Illegal gambling, um, I don't know, locations, yes, yeah, yeah, like right. points. Because uh, it was illegal in Ukraine, gambling, it was illegal. We didn't have uh, the normal legislation to regulate it. And I expected that parliament will um, uh, decide something about this. But when they fail our bill, our like uh, draft, um, uh, I understood that uh, it's impossible to find consensus and to find uh, decision solution in the parliament because of lobbyism and so on and so right. forth. And we should just cut this problem. And after that, we, we can speak with the stakeholders. Mm -hmm. Because when stakeholders are trying to influence your members of parliament, Corrupting them, it's right. it's much more complicated. We call um, them lobbyists here yeah. in the United States. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I believe that it's not the same. Lobbyism, lobbying is when you have some rules how to influence, and you show how you influence, and you like report how you influence. And much worse the situation when you don't have rules, mm -hmm. and you don't show, and you like play, manipulate, and so on and so forth, it's right. much worse. It's impossible to in exclude this, this game from a policy, from this political life, but it's, it's possible to regulate it, I believe. Uh, the same situation with the illegal gas uh, uh, distribution stations, illegal, because they undermined the uh, normal uh, competition in the market. Uh, so it was it, it was very important to show to the players in this market that the fair competition and, and, and you should pay taxes, you should play honestly, and so on and so forth, and you will be successful. Uh, the big privatization. We launched the big privatization last. We sent uh, uh, more than once something like one thousand. I don't I don't remember the concrete number, but something like one thousand. Like uh, state enterprises uh, to be privatized, uh, and it's the biggest number uh, than uh, than it was sent before 
for all the years of our independence. So we, and we launched a lot of reforms in the education sphere, in the healthcare sphere, so in the military actually sphere, we had a perfect, I believe, uh, Ministry of uh, Defense. Uh, you know, you know, I'd like to ask you just a little bit more about the military as well. You know, the, and, and the degree to which you're happy with the reforms in the military. When I, when I was a commander of Fort Benning, Georgia, and it was great to see so many young, energetic, dedicated Ukrainian officers come through Fort Benning. These, yeah. are, these were combat veterans, right, who had yeah. been, you know, and our viewers should know, there's an ongoing war in, East, in Eastern Ukraine. Yeah. And, and, uh, and they, they went back to, to Ukraine, I think, you know, very motivated. And some of them were disappointed, though, I think, with the existing command structures and, and felt as if they couldn't make the kind of changes they wanted to. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, th there's more to be done, uh, mm -hmm. obviously, always in, in, in reform efforts. For sure. How do you feel about the strengthening of Ukraine's ability to defend itself now uh, as Russia just even today <laughs> is massing more troops on, on the borders? I think that progress in this sphere is significant. Uh, we have much stronger and much more capable uh, forces, uh, military forces, than like five, seven years ago. The progress is absolutely obvious. and. Uh, a lot of very important, uh, not reforms, but changes, yeah, mm -hmm. transformations uh, have been done already. Uh, like, for example, we divided the ministry from general staff, yeah, yeah. general staff. Right. So it's very important to, to... For civil control of the military and absolute, oversight. Right? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, right. absolutely. Yeah. Because the ministry should uh, create a policy, yeah, mm -hmm. not to uh, organize and to execute the army. So. And it, it's only one example. A lot of protocols and standards were implemented, so uh, the progress is big. We still have a problem, of course, yeah. with all this. Uh, and we still, ha still have a shortage of our finances because war is always uh, big expenses, yeah. always. And logistic systems are so important. And absolutely. Yeah. And what's, what's important to understand, before the revolution of dignity, under Yanukovych, uh, Russia controlled uh, the military sphere in Ukraine. Right. Lebedev, Salamatian, sure. these guys were from this directly... This is how they annexed Crimea, right? They that's just, it. They, they already had absolutely. control of these bases. Absolutely, right? absolutely. They, they controlled these bases. Right. They undermined and destroyed mm -hmm. the capabilities and uh, make sure that they know everything. And, and, and actually, what's important to understand that Russia's goal wasn't only the Crimea and Donbass region. It wasn't. They were trying to, to Kharkiv, Dnepropetrovsk, uh, Dnepr now Odessa. So their goal was at that period of time to take at least uh, a half uh, of the territory of Ukraine. And uh, the fact that our society, nation, and then our military forces stopped uh, uh, Russia on the borders uh, shows uh, and it speaks for itself. So, and now we have a significant pro progress, as I already mentioned, but we still have a lot of uh, um, uh, problems and uh, we should do something with the threats from the sky and from the sea. Mm -hmm. it's, it's expensive to build these uh, Integrated system. air defense systems and shorter ship missile capabilities. Absolutely. Can, can I just, I just want to just, uh, because we only have a little bit of time left and there's so much to cover, but 
you know, the, of course, Russia is massing on the borders of, of yeah. Ukraine now. They've, they've reinforced their, their units in Crimea. It, it seems to be a direct threat. What yeah. do you think Putin's trying to achieve? Is it, does that have something to do with the water supply to Crimea, as some people have said? Uh, or is his ambition greater? Or is it just more coercive in general to try to turn the Black Sea into a Russian lake and intimidate Romania and Bulgaria and other countries? Yeah. What, what do you think is happening now? What is the danger to, to, to Ukraine and, and to security in Europe generally? Uh, I would say the Putin, uh, um, if Putin see the open door, mm-hmm. he will enter the open door. Right. He will use the all opportunities we will give him. So he will go so far, uh, we allow him to go. And it's very important to understand. He's trying to check and he's trying to, 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 to feel how far he can go with all these games. Uh, with these build-ups, uh, he's trying to create a pressure on our economy because it, it's, it's very complicated to attract investments, for example, to Ukraine, okay. if investors read in the news. The Jewish, uh, risk. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And uh, it's, it, it, it makes our resources uh, more expensive and so on and so forth. And uh, I think that uh, it's absolutely impossible to win this like uh, war in this battleground for democracy uh, without uh, the total involvement of all our Western resources. Because one more time, what's important to understand, it's not a war against Ukraine. It's not a war. Putin may have some tactical goals, but it's not the case. It's not what, what this war about. This word is to undermine democracy is an idea because Ukraine is a significant, very important country for Kazakhstan, for Kyrgyzstan, and at the same time for Bulgaria because of Slavic and uh, Christian, uh, Orthodox Christian religion, and for even Macedonia. It's like Ukraine is, is, is the biggest country in, in Europe, and it's in the most complicated situation because of a huge part of our population speaking Russia, and it makes uh, easier for Russia to involve, to, to, to influence through propaganda. It, we have the, the huge border with uh, Russia, and it creates a lot of threats uh, of uh, like direct military invasion and so on and so forth. And without, and, and it, it's not a war for Ukraine. It's not a war for Ukraine. Putin don't need Ukraine as like it's to, it's as to a drag territory. the Western world down, right? Because I think Putin thinks yeah. he, he his theory of victory is to be the last man standing, absolutely. so to speak. Right? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And this and this his words that okay, guys, uh, in case of nuclear war, uh, all of you will die and we will go to heaven. It's not it's not an empty words, I believe. It's it it. Of course, he didn't want to die. Of course, but uh, it shows us the like this concept of this Bible-style battle, mm-hmm. as I already described. They think, they believe, I, I, I believe that first first of all, they are trying to protect their corrupted interest, of course. Yeah, right. But the power behind this, keeps Putin in power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But behind this, behind this, it's a bigger idea, bigger idea. And if even Putin on his early years 
uh, like didn't believe uh, this. Now I, I, I'm sure he believed. Because when you repeat the same narrative like tons of time, right. uh, you started uh, to believe it yourself. This is the, this notion of him as the defender of the culture, and this is why he appears, you know, shirtless on horseback and yeah, so yeah. forth. So, yeah, so yeah. You know, I, we only have a couple and minutes left. And fighting a beer. There's only a few minutes left, but I, I really want to end with, with your thoughts and your advice on you know, how the United States, the EU, other countries can work with Ukraine, right, to, to strengthen Ukraine, a, a country that's clearly, as we've discussed, under economic duress, military duress, informational duress, uh, from this from this threat, and you know, I'm, I'm struck by our, our discussion about opportunities for private sector cooperation as well, and in, in, in the economic sphere, in energy security, and rare earths. Uh, but but what what can the U.S. government, other governments do? But also, where are the private sector opportunities to to help strengthen Ukraine and? And, uh, and, and to help win this fight between democracy and authoritarianism? Uh, of course, uh, uh, it's very important to invest, to invest uh, and to have some property and some like, even private interest from Western world there. So the investment is maybe the number one you need in Ukraine now. And it's very important to show by the example that, okay, guys, it's safe. We will protect this investment and you can rely on us. So the government of United States, for example, can like, uh, encourage the investors to work in Ukraine. For example, the offices of American global companies, from Google. Mm -hmm. Moscow is not the best place. Kiev is a much better place right. to locate uh, in the region. And it's only one example here. Yeah? The second, uh, symbolic support. Symbolic support, I mean that Guys, NATO plan, NATO plan, how to become a, a, a member. It's not, it's not about membership now. Okay, you should show us the road, we should, like, we should, we should, uh, we should go. Uh, but the political decision uh, that Ukraine is a Western part of the world, right. it's like the part of our... Same thing with the path uh, to EU membership. Absolutely, well, right? yeah. absolutely. It, yeah. Okay. Okay, it could be some conditions. Mm -hmm. It couldn't be some even like very like hard to achieve conditions. Right. But it should be a political decision. That we are ready to fight for this. Uh, mm -hmm. Because if not, if not, uh, this is a like opposite signal and Russia will use it right. to uh, undermine the, uh, the trust between, between Ukraine and between the Western countries. And for sure, I, I believe that uh, United Nations, uh, and we, we need a reform of this mechanism, how to uh, work with the conflicts in which involve the uh, or permanent members of uh, Security Council of United Nations. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, for sure we should rethink the approach in sanctions policy. And um, I have a concept of uh, like cascades uh, or conditional sanctions um, to impose it, costs on Russia beyond those that that they that they because consider it when they when look, they because now now existing existing model existing model creates a system uh, the system the situation when the time is working against the victim yeah and the time now works against the Ukraine yeah because. In like 10, 20, 20 uh, 30 years, 
uh, Crimea accident, Crimea annexation, will become a history. Yeah. Will become a history, and uh, the political pressure on that happen. Yeah, and right. every, every year it becomes more complicated task right. to remain sure. sanctions, right. and it will be politically more and more and more difficult. Uh, difficult. Yeah. And Putin, uh, and what signal it gives to Putin? Okay, I can wait. Right. I can wait, and, and I will undermine your democracy, and I will influence your domestic policy right. to make sure that someday I will have an opportunity to dismiss them. Yeah. And when I will dismiss them, I will show you that your, uh, your struggle will fail. And in that period of, uh, of time, at that moment, uh, the uh, Crimean annexation will be history and everything is okay and, and deal done. And it opens very, very dangerous, it creates a very dangerous intentions uh, for, a, for, for a China, for example, right. and for Russia, for sure, and for uh, such, such uh, aggressive countries. So I believe that it's absolutely critical to rethink and to change the sanctions approach, to make them more predictable, and to make sure that uh, the model uh, creates a situation when the time works uh, against uh, the uh, aggressor. And it's what, what, what's the most important, I believe, to understand that Ukraine now is a main battleground uh, for democracy in the world, and uh, it's not a war. It's not a local conflict. It's not a war between Ukraine and Russia. There is no any like conflict between our nations. It's a it's a it's a conflict of concepts. Ukraine uh, chose the democracy as a model, and we will fight for freedom, and we will not take it, take it into granted. And it's much. Uh, and as soon as you guys here in the western part of the world understand that it's very hot, not cold war, because the temperature of this cold war in our region is very, hot, is very high, uh, as soon as you understand it, the sooner the better. Well, Prime Minister Huncharak, I can't thank you enough on behalf of the Hoover Institution. Thank I'm you, so man. glad you're here with us because we're going to continue to learn more from you and, and, from, and learn more from your leadership <clears throat> and what we can do to help strengthen Ukraine on this frontier. Uh, between authoritarianism and democracy. Thanks for joining us. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.